0: Primary threat spotted. Moving into position. I the strength and certainty of steel. Cadia marks the boundary where reality and unreality meet. Of course, we didn't expect to die out here. You know, I'm beginning to wish I'd asked for more money. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. D20Radio.com Alright, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to Squad Tactica, episode 220. We are getting ready for Nova that is coming up in just a few weeks up in the Virginia area, and I'm going to be there playing all kinds of kill team doing some painting stuff and just kind of hanging out so if you're going to be in the area make sure to let me know either on facebook or on discord because we're just going to be having a really great time at um one of the best cons in the uh, you know united states so this week as always is sponsored by of course our patreon so thank you very much for supporting the show and Our really good friends over at BattleFoam, Discount Games Inc., and The Army Painter. So definitely check out those really cool brands. Um, I mean, I use them. I believe in them. And I think they're, uh, they're really something special. There's a lot of options out there in the miniature world that you know you can utilize but those three uh, are i just i really love the people i really love the product and you know lots of people who've been part of our team have uh, utilized their stuff so i can definitely recommend it and i think you know if you're listening to the show you should definitely check them out and give them a shot so this week we're going to jump in and talk about some interesting things uh nothing war cry related people have been asking you know are you going to do a war cry show and I'm going to do a pseudo-monthly Warcry show, I guess, is the answer to that question. Like, this this podcast is definitely going to stick with uh, Kill Team, even though I am getting Warcry and I'm playing Warcry. Um, we're not going to do another weekly show because that's just... Not really on the docket, I guess is the best way to put it. So, to answer the question, there will be some Warcry content here and there, and a, you know, once, maybe twice a month Warcry show, but it's not going to become a secondary thing or a, you know, uh, linear thing with Squad Tactical. We're going to stick with Kill Team because I like Kill Team a lot. I like the 40k universe, and uh, they're two completely different games, even though they are skirmish games. Uh, I've seen a lot of reviews, and I'm waiting to play my stuff probably this upcoming weekend but it seems like war cry is a very simplistic I, I shouldn't say simplistic it's a uh, it's a pick up and play kind of game compared to kill team it, it appears that Warcry, cry from what i've read and from what i've seen it's a lot easier to just grab and go whereas kill team has a lot more options of course kill team has been out for a year so there's more books there's more opportunities we've got elites we've got all kinds of different things and ways to customize our uh, you know, our command roster, and, you know, you can have multiple different armies that play completely differently based on the pilot, based on the sub-faction, based on a lot of different variables, and Warcry doesn't have that quite, quite yet. I mean, the game is a week, two weeks old, so both have a place in the system, but... Uh, Right now, Kill Team just has more to offer, and that's really the thing that this podcast started off with a year ago, which is really cool, and that's what we're going to stick with. So, you know, the answer to people's question, are you going to do work right? Yes. Is it going to change Squad Tactics? No, not really. So uh, this week, we're going to talk a lot and pretty much focus on getting new people into the hobby. Now, when we first started the podcast a year ago, Kill Team came out in July, and we had a month... And then I did a show talking about, you know, how do you bring people into the game? Because it's brand new. There's a lot of allure. There's a lot of questions. People aren't exactly totally sure. You know, do I do it? Do I not do it? Do I pull the trigger on this core rule book and a kill team? What's it going to cost me? You know, is it going to be an arm and a leg like eighth edition where it's going to be hundreds of dollars? It's going to take forever to learn the rules? Blah, blah, blah. And that was one of our most successful episodes. And now that we've gone a full rotation, and it's been a year, we've got you know X amount of books. We've got tons of events coming out. You know, you've got BAO, LVO, Nova, Adepticon, um, all kinds of big events across you know the world. There's all kinds of events happening in Europe and in multiple different countries around the world, and we have a lot of people who are either getting into Kill Team, or they're once again, surprisingly, on the fence about, oh hey, you know, I just started playing this game, and I saw Kill Team, should I do it? So we're going to kind of revisit, I guess we we could potentially become a yearly thing, but we're going to revisit bringing new people into the game, and what Kill Team looks like right now, going into the, you know, end of 2019, into 2020, what do you need, what do you want? Um, You know, we talked a little bit on the Discord channel, and, you know, shameless plug, but if you haven't checked out the Squat Tactical Discord channel, it's one of the friendliest places I've ever been. We've got tons of people who know the game, who play casually, competitively, we've got painters, we've got builders, we've got streamers, we've got everyone pretty much across the board, different skill levels, different age levels, different everything levels. And you know if you're looking for a place to connect with a bunch of really cool people, and you know if you have a question, you have a concern, you're like, hey, I don't know how to do this, or hey, how does this thing work? Somebody in the Discord knows. And I'm really impressed with just how amazing all of our Discord folks are, because it's just a really inviting and friendly place. So anyways, uh, we were talking on Discord just kind of about... What people are looking for, trying to learn, trying to grow and kill team. And there's a lot of really good questions, or a lot of really good answers to my question. And it just kind of reminded me oh, yeah, we haven't done a new player primer in. A long time and I know a lot of shows and a lot of podcasts and YouTube channels are getting heavily focused on the competitive aspect because we're going into a competitive season getting ready for Nova and then as soon as we translate into 2020 we've got the LVO over in Las Vegas and there's there's a lot of competitive events coming up with elites in tow and there's just a lot of variables going on people are really excited about that but the You know, Lifeblood, of any game, realistically, is the casual player, and a lot of people uh, seem to forget that. It's kind of frustrating at times because even though there may be, you know, 60 to 100 competitive people at Nova, there's thousands of people who are playing at home, playing with family, friends. Um, They're just playing for the fun of it. And it's kind of a disservice to ignore them or not even talk about them, and, you know, that's kind of the thing about Squad Tactica, is we don't really care who you are or what level you play, we just play games together. Like, that's the boat we're in. We're all on the Earth, and we're all playing games. It doesn't really matter what other variables they are. So. This week we're going to kind of talk about, or talk to and talk about, hey, you know, I'm wanting to get into Kill Team, or I'm trying to kind of get started some of the things you need to know, some of the things you need to remember, you know, going through the book, you know, your movement phase, psychic phase, you know, charging, uh, falling back, all kinds of little details that sometimes get lost in the mix when, you know, you're just trying to learn the game or um, getting started, or, I mean, there's all kinds of variables and reasons why. You may not need to, you may not want to, or you may not care to know all the rules. Um, but there are points in time where knowing the rules will actually make the game a lot more fun. Because when you come across a uh, an interaction that you don't understand, or that you seem, or you feel is unfair. Uh, knowing how the rules, uh, knowing how to parse through the rules and knowing how they, they resolve um, can make a question mark into a smile because you, instead of you know, trying to figure out, oh, what do I do? How does this work? I don't understand. You can just smile and go, oh, I know how this works. And you can move through the game instead of spending, because I've done this when we first started. You spend like 10, 15, 20 minutes going through the rule book and forums and Reddit and Facebook. And you're trying to find out, hey, this thing happened. I don't really understand how to resolve it. What do we do? And sometimes that can just really strip away some of the fun from the game because you're, you're in the middle of an enjoyable experience. You're, you're invested in your strategy and the game. And then kind of having to stop that and pull away to find an answer can sometimes just kind of uh, remove you from the ability to just kind of jump back in and have an enjoyable experience because now you're kind of separated. And so although you know people may not be competitive, knowing the rules is not a bad thing. Uh, but before we go into the, the core rules and how to play, let's talk a little bit about what you need. Because there is there are a lot of options. There is a plethora of um, products available right now. It's not nearly as simple as, oh, hey, buy one, buy two. So for people who just want to start playing, there is a brand new uh, core set coming out. It's going to be Tau versus Adeptus Astartes, which has been... Kitted towards Space Wolves. They're basically taking the two box sets that originally existed and mashing them together. So if you haven't played the game, if you haven't done anything yet, I would wait. Well, it's up to you. I'm pretty sure the box set is coming out in the next month, maybe two months. So if you can wait and hold off, it's probably going to be your best bet. If you're looking to just jump right in, get going, you want to play Kill Team right now, you have a core... These are the things that are available. These aren't things you need to buy. So you have a core rulebook, then you have a commander's expansion, then you have a uh, elite expansion, and then on top of that, you have a rogue trader box set that is... It's kind of an expansion slash its own thing. You could utilize that to be its own starter set-ish. You don't have a core rulebook. And then you have the arena... Uh, box set expansion thing so if you're just wanting to play kill team and not be competitive you want to get the core rulebook and then you need to find a kill team if you want to be competitive you're listening like man, i've seen some of these videos and i've seen some of these events i want to participate i want to be competitive uh, it's a little bit more expensive you need the core rulebook You need Arena and you need the Elite's book because all three of those things are what's being played in the competitive scene. So the core rule book has the core rules. Arena is kind of pushing the boundaries on the competitive scene. So some places are doing 3D terrain or open table, as you might have heard, on different uh, media outlets. And what that means is basically it's traditional warhammer traditional miniatures you play on a table you put terrain on the table you know there's heights there's blocking line of sight there's all kinds of different things there's a lot of plastic on the table then you have arena which is what some terrain well some tournaments are starting to push for um, because it kind of phases out the need for a massive amount of terrain for a massive amount of table so arena basically um kind of It's not like subjugates the game, but it turns the game from a lot of three-dimensional terrain to two-dimensional terrain on a physical board. So it's kind of like a board game. Imagine if you're playing like a dungeon crawler like Descent or maybe Imperial Assault, or, you know, whatever your favorite dungeon crawler, Doom. You have a, a dungeon crawler where all of the terrain is kind of built into the board, you have to imagine, okay, this is a wall, or this is, you know, a piece of terrain, you know, this is the engine, whatever. And so when you're playing on Arena, the only real terrain you have are Uh, doors which you have to open and that kind of makes the game interesting and then you have the traditional waist high trains you have a couple boxes on top of each other or some barrels or a pipe so there's no real blocking line of sight terrain outside of doors uh, all the line of sight blocking stuff is built into what's on this physical board like a board game so there's like red lines and things it's like you can't see through this because it's a wall or it's a gap you know it's like you know space you, you just can't see through it um, if you don't know what I'm talking about you if you look online you'll see the board and you'll see okay here's like these these long hallways or a small room with a single door on one end and one, another door on another end so anything that is you know, surrounded, that's not in the hallway, you can't see because it's just blocking line of sight. So those are the two things that the competitive uh, aspects are for, you know, going to major events, you're going to have to be prepared for open terrain, and you're going to have to be prepared for arena, which is why you're going to use your command roster. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But the other thing you need is the elites book, because the, the book itself is important. Because you have at, uh, the opportunity to utilize sub factions. The book also offers a lot of extra units, but a majority of armies are not using those units in a 100 point list. And that's another thing to address. I'll get there in a second. But stock tournaments are still 100 points. Um, you have a 20 model command roster. You uh, there's there's a lot of different factors that we could get into, but the reality of competitive events is they're still utilizing 100 points, you have a 20-model uh, limit command roster. The elites book is necessary because when you have your secondary factions, your sub-factions, it opens up a lot of opportunities for your kill team to have flexibility so you get different opportunities you get different list builds you get all kinds of different things so that gives the player an extra tool in their toolbox the other thing for elites you know to be said is it kind of leveled out and balanced um, some of the, the weaker, quote-unquote, weaker kill teams and gave them an opportunity to be much better. So, for example, your corn Berserkers for Chaos Space Marines are, are nuts. Um, they brought the Chaos Space Marines into competitive viability. You've got your Drukari, where you've got the Rax. You've got um, a lot of different things in the Drukari list that's bringing them to the forefront of competitive kill team. And now, that's not to say they're the best thing in the world you have to go and buy them, but going from the core rule book to the core rule book plus the elites book means that we're seeing more kill teams uh do better in tournaments than ever before and that's good you never want to see a game where it's like one or two specific lists you know we're talking about card games or even miniatures it's really boring when a meta is like hey you either play one or you play two and that's it because you could be a player who says i want to play six and you know people laugh and they go well you know 1 and 2 are the best things and 3 and 4 and 5 are you know not good and 6 is just awful and no player wants to play a game where the thing that they want to play is bad so it is really good to see that elites has opened up a lot more options and that kind of brings me back the reason I wanted to talk about competitive Lists and things you need competitively first is because I also want to kind of uh, you know, boomerang around to casual players who say, you know, I don't care about competitive. I'm not interested in playing in tournaments. I want to play with my son, my daughter, my wife, my friends, my, you know, local game store. We just play for fun. You know, we're, we're just having a good time. We paint, we play, and we just, you know, yuck it up okay that's perfectly fine I, I like doing that way more than I like playing competitively because usually you know there's a lot more on the line and people are a little bit you know harsher on the rules and you know when you're when you're playing competitively at least for me you try to give it your all and it's a lot more stressful because if you make a mistake casually generally you know you can say to your your playmate hey can I take that back And they go yeah yeah sure we're playing for fun no big deal Uh, when you're playing competitively that is not an option if you make a mistake you've made a mistake and you're locked into that mistake Um, but the reason I talk about the competitive stuff first when you're playing casually you only technically need the core rule book I recommend and I believe that if you were to also purchase the elites book um, you would be very happy for a couple of reasons. One, Elites gives you a lot more options, especially if you own models and you play a list. Say, for example, you know you already play 8th edition or Apocalypse and you've already got your army. And now you're like, wait, I want to play some kill team. That looks fun. I've already got everything I need. I just need a rule book. The core rule book, when it first came out, was uh, decent. Like, when it first came out, it was good. And then over the course of time, it became... Uh, not like worse and worse but it became less good because people were like hey I've played the core rule book a lot and I'm only able to play like two models can I play some more models um, for example Grey Knights they only have like one model and that's kind of boring after you know 50 60 games um, Death Guard I play a lot of Death Guard and believe you me uh, I've only got options well in the core rulebook at least i've only got options for space marines and boxwalkers so after you play 100 games it's like i would like some (laughs) i would like some different models to play with and you know that's kind of the nice thing about the core rulebook is some armies have a lot of options like the tau or you know like um necrons Tyranids, you have kind of, you know, more than just one model. But when you buy the Elites book, you get all the models in the Core rule book, and you get all the models in Elites. And on top of that, especially for casual play, because I really, really like playing Elites in casual play, you can up the points. You can increase the points from the stock 100 uh, to whatever you want. Now, commanders, we'll talk about that in a second, but the uh, traditional tournament the traditional standard is 100 points when elites came out it opened up the 125 and 150 point threshold and when you're playing casually I think that's a really great number because you have options to bigger models more expensive models um, you know you can do a lot of different things that you can't do out of the core rule book once again it is not a necessity but if you're listening and you're like I just want to play casually I I personally believe that the core rulebook and elites book is going to make you really happy because now you can add an extra 25 or 50 points. You know, for example, when you play Tau, you have crisis suits, um, you have terminators in all the factions. Everybody got a terminator. Um, I don't know. You know, you're playing Drakari. you get access to racks and Incubi and um, different kinds of options that you you didn't have before. You know, if you wanted to play orcs, you didn't have access to flash kits, or um, you had access to knobs, but they were an upgrade from boys. Now knobs have their own profile. Um, there's just a lot of different things. Like, between the two books, you can use pretty, pretty much, not all of them, but a wide majority of of all foot based, you know, infantry based models. There's no tanks, there's no, you know, vehicles, there's no walkers, there's no big mechs. It's just infantry because it's a skirmish game. It's supposed to be a quick, you know, 30 to 45 minute skirmish type of game. I guess the biggest mechish thing you could use would be a crisis suit. Um but you know, as we all know, they're they're not nearly as big as, you know, an an actual you know, mech, an actual suit, an actual, you know, wide-based model. These are all still, you know, 40 millimeters or smaller, if that. So, utilizing the two books gives you an opportunity to have pretty much everything at your disposal and it opens up some really fun theming for orcs and well, it opens up theming for everybody, but I really like orcs because you can bring, you know, just a flash get mob and you have all kinds of different orky things you can do, or with Tau, you can run a crisis suit army, uh, with space Marines, you can do, um, what have we done? We've, you can run like two terminators and then a couple scouts. Like you can run these really small lists and just have fun bashing people's heads in and it's not competitive but it's really fun now you might have noticed i haven't talked much about commanders and that is for a very good reason there are big pros and big cons with commander so this is non-competitive if you're listening you're like is this a, a book i need to buy for competitive no no, no. now it is really fun ish and i'm gonna specify why Commanders came out, and Games Workshop did not balance it. Is it fun? Absolutely. Is it fair? No, not at all. Now, the Commanders out of Elites mixed with the Commanders book, that's a different story. Um, but the, the biggest problem for people who are listening who have never played or who haven't bought Commanders, who haven't played much commanders, Commanders... Um, the the biggest issue is some commanders are really expensive. So, for example, there's a Tyranid level 4 commander that is 194 points. It's got like 10 wounds. It's really gross. It's super amazing. It's really fun to play. You also have Imperial Guard commanders that come out to like 30 points. And commander games are 200 points. So the problem with commanders is there are some commanders in some factions that are just overpowered for their points it's just that's just how it is there's no really better way to say it there's no really good way to sugarcoat it the commander's book is unbalanced now that doesn't mean it's not fun that doesn't mean it's not casual friendly. That doesn't mean anything. That it's not a reason you shouldn't buy it. But a lot of people just haven't been explicit about the fact that commanders, if you're trying to play and have fun, and someone picks, you know, an OP commander, and you pick a not OP commander, they just have an advantage that you don't have. So, you know, a way to, you know, combat that is you can house rule it. Um, You can house rule that this commander has extra points. There's a lot of things you can do just because commanders was, in my opinion, it was built to be a a expansion in the most basic of terms of expansion. Like it exists for people who want it. So, for example, if you buy a board game, you get the core game. Uh, I guess we uh, we could use X-Wing. As an example, it's probably a terrible example. I'll use a board game instead. So you buy something like uh, like Root. I really love Root. That's a fun game, or Machi Koro, whatever you want to call it. Settlers of Catan, whatever. We'll say Settlers of Catan because that's a very general game. You buy the core game, and the game is there. You have you know fifty dollars. You buy the core game. It's a really fun experience. Boom. You bought Settlers of Catan, you know how to play Settlers of Catan. And then five months later, six months later, they say, "Here, here's a new expansion, Settlers of Catan, Asia, you know, represent my Japanese heritage. But, you know, they have these, you know, Japanese things, or, you know, you have uh, Settlers of Catan, uh, America, Settlers of Catan, Africa, Settlers of Catan, India, whatever country, whatever expansion you want to call it, doesn't really matter. But there is an expansion for the core game, and they introduce these new mechanics and these new units and these new things, and it's available available but not necessary. That is how I feel about Commander. Commanders is an expansion. It is optional. It brings new things to the table. There's new units. There's new models. Well, it's just new models, actually. They don't actually bring new like units to the table. It's named big characters that you can play. So instead of all of your models being generic, you know, Space Marine, one, two, three, four, you now have named models. You have like Slimar Bro and things like that. So uh, the point I'm trying to get across is the key, the core rulebook for kill team exists that's what you need the commander's expansion just like the settlers of catan expansion it brings new things to the table but you don't need it but if you enjoy settlers of catan and you want to try something new and have some fun you can buy it but it's not for everybody it's not necessary Uh, You can go online and look through Reddit or, you know, send a message on the Discord channel and ask, you know, what are the good things? What are the bad things? Like, there's there's a lot of things you can go in depth with, and we're not going to do that in this episode. But Commanders brings more options to the table. And if you want to play fun games and have a fun time and, you know, build your list with, you know, named characters that are more epic and they're running into battle and crushing the opponent, that's probably good. It's probably something you want. If you're looking for something that's balanced something that's fair something that's even for you and your friends probably not <laughs> that would be my opinion probably not if you're just looking to have a good time and you don't care go for it but commanders i own it i've used it i played it it is something i only do when i don't care uh, that which is not often because i'm usually practicing for an event um, but there's times where we'll do a weekend where it's like, we're just going to play commanders. And it is fun because there's a lot of very specific models that you don't get to feel except in commanders. And, uh, you know, when you have painted them and they look really cool and you play them on the tabletop, and it looks really cool. It's a cool experience. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I don't hate commanders, but I'm just kind of always... Constantly prepping and playing and teaching people, and that usually involves the competitive uh, rule set that involves the hundred point list that involves a lot of things that Commanders doesn't have. Um, but when I have the time and the availability to play for fun, I, I do play some Commanders. Um, and then the last thing to talk about for people who are listening, and conveniently this is a free resource for everyone. Uh, whenever you're playing games, I always recommend, especially for newer players. Um, I The one thing about the core rulebook I very much dislike are the missions in the core rulebook. Now, I'm looking at them from a competitive standpoint, and for me, I enjoy missions that are equal, that are fair, and that make give both players no benefit. So, for example, um, when you're playing in a tournament, generally, this is how it's supposed to be, but when you play a tournament... The, the battlefield should be equal. Both players should be shooting for the same thing. The uh, terrain should be fairly equal. It should be as fair as possible. So the player who wins is the player who is more skilled. There's not a given advantage where, you know, one side gets an extra 20 points and another side gets nothing. You're like, whoa, that's, that's a 20% boost. Like, that's just a flat mathematical advantage. Like, why? And the core rulebook has that. The core rulebook has missions that just, some of them, not all of them, but some of them just flat out give a player a benefit. There's there's no reason why, it's just how the missions were written. If you're playing casually, that's fine. You, you probably don't care. The problem I have even when playing casually for me personally is that uh, usually, on average, like 60-40, sometimes 70-30, the advantaged player just wins. It's really, really hard to stop them. And for me, that's not fun. For me, it's more fun when both players have a goal to achieve and they both have the same amount of difficulty to achieve it. Not, I have to achieve a very hard thing and you only have to achieve a slightly hard thing. Well, why is it? Not equal. That that's my question for some of these things. So, like I said, if you're playing casually and you don't care, you can completely ignore that. But the thing I'm referencing for free for all the players who are listening: use the rules from Nova and Adepticon and, and BAO. Go to the websites if they've made the packets available for free. I know Adepticon and Nova are free, so you can find Adepticon 2019, Nova 2018, and Nova 2019. They just put their packets out, uh, if I'm not mistaken, for. Uh, the Nova kill team tournament now you do need a core rule book because the core rule book will explain What the packet is telling you but the packets are basically uh, missions and parameters and ways to play so for example in the core rule book you'll have you know this guy you know this player is trying to escape the board and this player is trying to stop you from escaping the board so here's the setup here are the rules here are the victory conditions blah 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 it's all built into that specific mission well guess what Uh, these big tournaments actually have their own specific missions and they're free and available to the public unless they have pulled them down which i haven't seen as of you know time of this recording so what i recommend for a lot of people is buy the rulebook but go to like the adepticon website you know look up adepticon kill team mission packet or nova you know a mission packet and you'll find a free pdf and they'll have these missions and they are based on competitive environments but they're super duper fair they're super equal you know, both sides have no advantage, both sides have, you know, parameters to win the game. There's secondary there's all kinds of things that make the game for me fun, because no player is at an advantage or disadvantage. It's just a flat, hey, you gotta capture these points or you have to control this objective, or you have to sit in this area for a turn, you know, capture the, or I'm not, not, not capture the flag. Um, You know, King of the Hill, you have to sit on this, this zone and have the most models here for, you know, one turn to score a point, things like that. For me, that's fun because everything is fair and you get to play the game on an equal level. And the really nice thing is those are free PDFs that you don't have to pay anything for. So you can buy the rule book for 40 bucks. Or, you know, if you go to Discount Games, Inc., it's cheaper there. Um, you know, you can find the PDFs from these major tournaments for free, and you've got a really good starting point. If you don't want to buy the Elites book, that's fine. But the Core rule book will have all the things you need to know. The mission packets from Nova and Adepticon will give you some new alternative missions you can do. So you can do, miss- you can do missions in the book. You can do missions from Nova. You can do missions from Adepticon. Basically, the thing I'm saying is if you get the Core rule book and the mission packets, you'll have... Gracious, like ten to fifteen mission uh, options, and that's a lot for you know just buying a rule book. And going online. It doesn't take, you know, it's nice that these resources are available, but it gives you, the player, the new player, the flexibility to try different things at a very minimal cost. A lot of games, a lot of places will say, you know, if you want to try these mission packets, you have to pay for them, you have to, you know, go to the event, you have to go to the tournament. You know, and Kill Team is really nice because a lot of these missions are available on the internet quite freely. You can even make your own. Uh, the, the kill team system and infrastructure is very fan player, fan base friendly, where you can take, you know, a mission you like and a mechanic you like and a scoring objective you like and put it together and make your own uh, whatever. You can make your own campaign. You can make your own storyline. You can make your own mission packet. It's very, very customizable. All right, so on the bottom half of the show, now that we've talked about the things that are available and the things that you can buy uh, and the things that you need if you're going to get started or if you're going to play competitively, um, one of the biggest things I've actually noticed over the course of the year that I get questions about is stuff inside the battle round. And if you're you know, reading the core manual, that's going to be page starting at page 20 and ending as I flip through my manual here page 36. So 16 pages of text is uh, some of the most critical stuff you'll ever read to not only learn how to play the game, but if you want to get competitive, be good at playing the game. There's, There's more times than not I'm flipping through these 16 pages in any given event. If it's a tournament, if it's a casual game, there are just so many things inside of these battle round pages that people uh, don't know or they've overlooked i learn things all the time like i I thought i knew all these things and someone goes no no you can do this i'm like what (laughs) and that's kind of the cool thing about kill team is we're always learning we're always growing as players but the uh, the rest of the show we're going to talk about the battle round and what happens so you have six phases uh there's the initiative phase movement phase the psychic phase the shooting phase the fight phase and the morale phase and i'm not going to go into every single detail but um you know we had a lot of people asking on the discord channel about things like tactics falling back overwatch melee getting into melee scouting morale all these things and i was like wait a minute all of these questions are sitting inside of the battle round Okay, let's just talk about that. So first off, the initiative phase. Number one, this is the simplest and sometimes the most forgotten thing. Uh, At the start of every battle round, both players roll a d6. I'm sorry, they roll 2d6. And whoever rolls the highest goes first. So... Kill Team is not like board games or card games where the first player is always first. Every round, there's a reset. Everyone is set to zero, and you have to roll two dice to see who goes first. It's very, very simple, but a lot of people forget that, especially newer players. They uh, they do the initiative phase at the start of the game, and then they just assume that you know whoever's the first player is always the first player. That is not true. Every time you end a battle round... You reset, you roll 2d6 to see who goes first. So don't forget that. Alright, movement phase. Number two, this is probably um, the most underutilized and most questioned um, phase slash section of the book. I get more questions out of this than anything else probably. And that's fair because it has the most meat and potatoes of Kill Team something I've learned over the course of playing over the year, uh, attending events, um, you know, just, just for my pedigree, not to, you know, show off or anything, but, um, in the Dallas Open, I won the Dallas Open, it was a nine-player event, it wasn't super big, but, you know, it's still nothing to scoff at, um, at Adepticon, I tied for first place in my pod, um, you know, I've, I talked to a lot of competitive players, talked to a lot of casual players, I've taught a lot of people, so, you know, I, I know what I'm talking about, but, the movement phase has so many little hidden gems and so many little nuances, and it's really easy to miss something or skim over it or, you know, get confused. So I'm gonna I'm not going to dive into every single aspect, but when you're brand new or you're newer or for people who are asking, how do I get better at the game? Uh, every time someone asks me that, I show them page 21 through 24. 5. Yeah. 21 through 25. You you got to read this thing, you know, like your bible, like your manual, your whatever you, you read methodically or religiously. You got to read through it because there's a lot and I mean a lot of stuff. Every single paragraph all for the most part has something hidden and it's very very important that you know all of these details because you know, I I get like I said I get so many questions about, you know, how does this work? What does this work? And you know, asking questions is fine. I'm not like d- demeaning or making fun of everyone. Um, but I just, even myself, I I realized I I didn't really read through this when I first started. I kind of skimmed through it because I've played eighth edition, seventh edition, sixth edition. I played minis. I know how to move my model. Okay, moves you know inches equal to its movement speed. Like that's not hard. Yes, that is correct. That's right. But there's things like, you know, flying and falling back and advance. advancing is pretty easy, um, you know, charging, retreating, um, you know, making your char- there's a lot of things I didn't know um, that. If I didn't read it like very, very intently, if you just skim over and go, OK, I yeah, make charge move, that's easy. You roll 2d6, you, you move, you blah, blah, blah. That's uh, that's not actually correct, and we'll we'll get to that here in a second. But there's there's so much in the movement section that gets overlooked that anyone who's listening, I I just highly recommend like read through it, and then like a day or two later, like read through it again, and then a day or two later, like read through it again because you're going to find something you didn't know. I, that's just how it is. So in the movement phase, they go through how you move your models. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the. Uh, hidden gems, the things that I learned coming from, um, when I first started to where I am now and the stuff I've learned across the table when, you know, you've played whole hundreds of games. These are the kind of nuanced things you, you find out from someone doing it and you go, you can't do that. And they go, yeah, I can't. So send in this paragraph on this page and you go oh, I didn't know you could do that. Or you do that to someone, they go, you can't do that. And you go, yes, I can, it's in this page, in this paragraph, blah, blah, blah. So the first thing we're gonna talk about in the nuanced section of the movement phase is fly. This is a keyword that not many models have and not many people understand. So I'm just gonna read from the rule book. If the data sheet for a model says fly, i.e. it has the fly keyword, it can move across models and terrain other than impassable terrain, as if they were not there, though it must end its move on a surface it can stand on other than another model or another model's base. And you do not measure vertical distance when moving a model that can fly. This one paragraph has a lot of uh, beefy content. in So the first part is you can move across models and terrain. A lot of people do not know that you cannot move through models, friendly or enemy. So, for example, if you have two models that are touching bases, uh, we'll say you're playing orcs. So, you got two orc boys. Ah, daka, daka, daka. And they're touching bases. And you have an orc boy behind them. You can't move straight through them. You have to move around them. And I know that sounds really stupid because while well, they're friendly models, they would get out of the way, right? Uh, unfortunately, in Kill Team, that just doesn't work. I don't know why. Uh, it, it doesn't make any sense, but um, it is what it is. And here's the, the rule for it. On page 21, under moving in the second paragraph, it says, Whenever you move a model, it can be moved in any direction or combination of directions, but cannot be moved across other models or their bases. So that that's just that's just the rule like it's flat they're written in the rule so what fly does is you can say i don't care so usually when you think about flyers uh, you think about tau and drones because in the core rulebook that is pretty much the staple flying model when you get into elites there's other models that fly but we're going to kind of stay to the brand new player who's only buying the core rulebook we'll make mention of elites and other things as we go through but we're just going to stick with the core rulebook so with fly, you know, if you've got a wall of models, you can just fly right over them. It doesn't matter. Whereas you can't do that with Uh, foot soldiers. You have to move around a model. You cannot move through a model or a model space. The other thing here is you don't measure vertical distance with moving with fly. Um, Another thing you'll probably encounter after this conversation is the flip belt on a Harlequin. You don't measure height when you're moving through terrain. As a normal model, if you move to a a wall you want to climb the wall you have to move horizontally and vertically when you're doing your measurement for inches so you can move like 3 inches towards the wall and then 5 inches up the wall and that would be a 8 inch movement so you'd have to do an advanced roll because most models only move 6 so when you're flying you just go okay i'm going to go from point a to point b what is the distance and you go boop straight line super easy um like i said this is something a lot of people look over because they don't have it and when they encounter something with fly they're not quite aware of how it works so we're just going into what fly is what fly does the other thing that's important about fly is later here in the movement phase you can actually fly and shoot when you fall back and i guess we'll just kind of jump right in so falling back this is probably one of the most questioned and misunderstood things i've seen um, from players everywhere so Uh, I'm going to explain two things. Falling back and retreating. Falling back activates if you would pick a model to move. And the model started within one inch of an enemy model. So what that means is, alright, I'm I'm the orc player again. We do orcs. It's our turn. You start your turn and you go first. Your orc boy is in melee combat with your opponent's uh imperial guard infantry guy okay you can choose to fall back with your orc boy model or you can choose to stay in combat with your enemy retreat and I'm gonna explain what fallback is but uh retreating because people say oh, I'm gonna retreat here retreating only happens during the charge phase so if someone declares, we're going to go back to the Orc Boy and the uh, Imperial Guardsman. So if you are an Orc Boy and you declare, I'm going to charge this Imperial Guardsman over here, that is when the opponent can decide to either overwatch or they can decide to retreat and run away. A lot of people um, will say, you know, I'm going to retreat You know, in, during the movement phase. It's like, okay, what's what am I going to do with this model? I'm going to retreat. Technically, that is incorrect. I understand what you're saying, um, but the, the problem is you want to make sure that you use the right terminology because um, you want to get the right effect. Because I've seen people in a game say, uh, I'm going to retreat my model and I get three inches. Technically, you're correct. When you retreat in the charge phase, you can retreat up to three inches away from the enemy model. But the thing is, you're shortcoming you're, or you're, you're shortchanging yourself because falling back is not a three-inch movement. And we're going to jump into that right now. So when you fall back, uh, I'm going to read here from the rulebook. When you pick a model to move, if that model started the movement phase within one inch of an enemy model, it cannot make a normal move. Instead, it can either remain stationary or fall back, which we talked about. A model cannot fall back if, the eni- if an enemy model finished a charge move within one inch of it in the same phase. If you choose to fall back, the model can move a distance equal to or less than its move characteristic, but must end its move more than one inch away from all enemy models. A model that falls back cannot shoot later in the battle round unless it has fly. That is a lot of stuff to parse through, so we're going to go through bit by bit. Uh, once, Like I said before, when you pick an enemy model to move, if the model started the movement phase within one inch of an enemy model. So falling back means you are not charged and you're just standing there that's another thing people get wrong people um might go second and you and your orc boy and the guardsmen are in combat and an infantry guardsman charges your orc boy and gets into combat Uh, i've seen people say okay i'm gonna fall back i'm gonna run away blah blah blah. you can't do that if you were charged can't do anything. So, the easiest way when I'm teaching this mechanic is if both of you were standing there and just looking at each other and nothing else happened, you have the option to fall back if both of you were standing there and something happened, somebody charged in. So you know you're you're having a conversation, your friends, your buddies, you're talking about you know the latest Marvel movie, and someone jumps in and goes, "Hey, what's going on over here?" Okay, well at that point you can no longer fall back. You cannot disengage from you know your your party, your conversation, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you have to participate. You're forced to continue fighting or whatever. Uh, so it's very simple. If nothing happened, you can choose to fall back. If something happened, you can't fall back. Um, If you choose to fall back, and this is why I said falling back and retreating are two different things, you can use your entire movement profile if you want. That is a big difference from retreating. And like I said with fly, if you have the fly keyword, this is why drones are really good. This is why Tau are very, very powerful. If your drone is in melee combat and it doesn't get charged or you happen to go first in the round, you can fly away. You just say, all right, I'm going to fall back. Drones move 8 inches with fly, so you can just run, or you can just fly wherever you want. A lot of times there will be like a wall within 8 inches, and you just fly behind the wall. They can't shoot you, they can't see you, they can't charge you, they can't do anything. It's perfect. Um, or, another really cool tactic is you fly onto an objective, and you can test it. You cannot charge when falling back, it's just... A, it's a fallback movement, so you don't get to roll 2d6, you don't get to charge, you just get to make a movement that is equal to or less than your movement, and you cannot be within one inch of an enemy, and that's how you trigger combat is being within one inch of an enemy. So falling back gives you the option to you know, maneuver yourself away. Um, the other thing that fallback does is the model that you left sitting there in the dust... They can only do one of two things. They can stay still so that they can shoot in the shooting phase, the the subsequent shooting phase, or they can move to kind of reposition themselves. But if they do that, they can't shoot in the shooting phase. Also, they can't charge. So this is kind of a lockdown strategy where you can, you know, charge into an opponent, you probably can't kill them, but they probably can't kill you, and you can't be shot when you're in melee combat. So the, the tactic is, you run a model into somebody else's model, you charge them, you know that they can't kill you, you know that you can't kill them, and then in the next phase, uh, you hopefully go first, and you fall back. And if you have a drone with Tau, you would basically run up you charge your opponent, you get into melee combat, that model cannot be shot in the shooting phase, you go into melee, they probably don't kill you, then you go into you know the next battle round, if you roll high, you do a fallback, and you move your drone down the field even further, and that model that you charge can't really do anything, they can either move or they can shoot. but. You know, if they shoot, they're probably stuck in a really bad place where they don't have cover, and you can take advantage of that. Or if they move, they don't get to shoot, and you can, you know, be aware that that model is not putting any kind of uh, damage onto the battlefield during that round. So it's a very strategic use of, you know, charging and falling back. But falling back is uh, very, very potent, and it is something that, used correctly, can swing. Uh, bad situations to really good situations. Now, I do not recommend charging recklessly into models and hoping that you go first because uh, if you don't go first and they charge you, like if you if you say, for example, do the thing I said with the drone. So turn one, you move down the field. Turn two, you charge you know, your opponent's orc boy and he doesn't kill you. And then you go to turn three and you don't go first. If your opponent charges you, you're stuck, you're still stuck in combat, and now you're probably gonna lose the model because you're getting hit with two attacks and you can't fall back, you're forced to stay in combat, and that feels really bad. So, you wanna use this very strategically. Uh, moving along, we have advancing, pretty simple. You know, you roll a d6 and you get to move that many more inches. Uh, readying, uh, when you pick a model to move, instead of making a normal move, you can ready it and they get to shoot first in the shooting phase. Very simple. Uh, one of the more complex things we're going to talk about is charging. This is, you would think this is simple, but it's really more complex than just what it says. So in a nutshell, because, you know, we're getting short on time here, charging is a, uh, an option that you have as a commander to, you pick a model, Any model within 12 inches, whether you can see it or not, that's very important. Enemy model within 12 inches, you can declare a charge against. So, uh, you you know, when when people ask, why do you say uh, line of sight is not important? Well, the reason why is because after you declare a charge against a model... The opponent has an opportunity to react. Now, something I didn't bring up and we're going to bring up now because I wanted to uh, sequence this appropriately. When you react, you can choose to overwatch or you can choose to retreat. We talked about retreat earlier. If you have fallen back, you cannot react. There's other ways you can't react, but I'm just bringing this up so it's not like super confusing. So, you know, you understand why and when these things happen. So. Once again, we'll go back to the orc boy. I am hiding behind a wall. And there are three guardsmen within 12 inches of me. We'll say one is at 3 inches, one is at 6 inches, one is at 9 inches for the sake of argument to make this simple. And I can choose to declare charge against one, two, or three of them because they're all within my range. At this point in time... All three of those models have an opportunity to A, Overwatch, or B, Retreat. Now, the reason I specifically said this example, my guy, my model is behind a wall and cannot be seen, is because a model cannot be shot with Overwatch if the opponent does not have line of sight when you declare the charge. So this is one of those really sneaky things that you can do to your opponent where you hide a model behind a wall, you know, round one, you advance, you run your models down the table, you hide behind a wall, they run their models down the table, and then, you know, potentially you go first And then you declare, cool, you know, your models are out of line of sight. They can't see me, but they're within my charge distance. So I'm going to declare charge against, you know, these three models, one at three inches, one at six inches, one at nine inches. Now, that that would never happen in the real world, but this is just an example. So at this point, my opponent can say, okay, I'm going to overwatch. Well, then the rules say you can't do anything because you can't see me. Or my opponent can choose to retreat my model. And the way retreat works is a target model cannot retreat if it has already made a move of any kind or attempted to charge in this phase. So this is very important. I'm reading from the rulebook. So you can't move down the table and then your opponent charges you and then you run away. So basically you have to uh, you have to have stood still for a turn Uh, basically at the start of. Um, The battle round. You you can't have moved because, you know, like I said, you can't move down the field and then run away. Basically um, your movement uh, how how do I put this in a simplistic way? You could say that uh, you can move one time in the movement phase. Either you're moving for well that's not true because you can retreat and then still anyways we're not going to get into that that's getting overly complex so anyways i'm reading retreat target model cannot retreat if it has already made a move of any kind or attempted to charge in this phase a model can retreat if had if it has already fired overwatch in this phase a model retreats it can be moved up to three inches by the controlling player uh to clarify When it says a model can retreat if it is already overwatched, you cannot do both. You only get to pick overwatch or retreat. But something that can happen is, uh, say there's another orc boy who is not in cover. He can declare a charge. And then my opponent can say, cool, I'm going to overwatch. And they kill him. And then I charge them with a different model. They could choose to overwatch this model we're talking about behind a wall. Now they can say, okay, well, I can't overwatch. I can't shoot them because I can't see them. So I'm going to retreat. That is a legal move. But you can't double retreat. You can't move in the movement phase and then retreat if you're charged. You know, things like that. Um, So hiding a model behind a wall, you can charge. They can't shoot. They can choose to retreat. And then you roll 2d6. And that is your maximum charge distance. So if you roll uh, four inches, you can only charge the infantryman that was three inches away. If you roll six inches, you can get either of them. It's your choice. And if you roll nine or more inches, you can target one of the three models. If those models are within one inch of each other, you could put your model uh, in between two of them. As long as you are within one inch of an enemy model, you are to have, uh, you, you're, you're uh, in melee combat distance. So, you know, if there's a um, a guardsman at three inches away and then a guardsman at four inches away and you roll four inches, you could charge the four inch model. The mo- You could charge both models because your base would be um, one inch away from both. The 3-inch away model and the 4-inch away model, if that makes sense. Uh, So you can do multi-charge where one of your models can lock down multiple enemy models in combat. Um, The other thing that charging has that is... Now, this is not in the rulebook. This is going to be in the FAQ or designer's commentary. So this is something... I didn't know until they came out, and this is something I've always wanted to tell people who who listen. Uh, You need to read the FAQ and the designer's commentary because there's a couple things in there that are not in the core rulebook that are very important. So when it comes to charging in the rulebook, in the core rulebook, the way it's written is wrong. The way the rules are now, when you make a charge, you roll 2d6, you can choose to either—now, if you make the charge— successfully, you charge your opponent. If you have multiple targets that you've charged, and you've rolled the maximum distance, so for this example, you've got three inches, six inches, nine inches, and you roll two sixes, you roll 12 inches, you get to pick who to charge. It's completely up to you. If you roll not enough inches, so for example, say you rolled six inches, so you can charge the three-inch model or the six-inch model, but not the nine-inch model, you still get to pick. we will change this example and say that you're hiding behind a wall and the only target available is the 9-inch model. It's 9 inches away from you. If you roll 2d6 and you get 5 inches, you don't get enough, you're you're not close enough, you have two options. You can either stay still and do nothing, or you have to move all 5 inches in a straight line as close as you can to your enemy model. Those are not in the rulebook. So you're going to say, well, Sugi, I don't see that in the rulebook. They're not in the rulebook. They're in the designer's commentary and FAQ. The reason I'm telling you this in the podcast is when we first started playing, we got so used to the rules as written where you could choose to move some of the distance. And so you could use charges to get extra movement that, you know, orcs only move like five inches. But if you rolled like, you know, a six inch charge, but your opponent was, you know, 10 inches away, you still got an extra inch of movement uh, and you could you can move however you wanted. They changed that completely. So like I said previously, you have to either stay still or move in a straight line the maximum distance, which usually puts you out in the open and gets you killed so that is a major change in how charges work that is not in the core rule book so to do please be aware of that it's very important now we're going to go back to the three inch six inch nine inch example and say that my orc is not behind a wall and all of my opponent's models can see my orc if i declare a charge against the three inch six inch and nine inch model All three of those models get an opportunity to react before I get to charge, which means they get three opportunities to shoot me with Overwatch. Now, you still have to hit on a six, but giving your opponent three shots is much worse than giving your opponent one shot if you just declare, I'm going to only charge the model three inches away from me. Uh, one last thing to discuss about charging that's important in terms of moving, and then we're going to move on, uh, for the example of the 3 inch, 6 inch, 9 inch, if you declare a charge against the 6 inch model, but not the 3 inch model, uh, say you're in line of sight, because you wouldn't do this if you're out of line of sight, hiding behind the wall, uh, and you, you're in line of sight there's a target you really need to get to it's six inches away and then there's that one model three inches away if you roll say for example six inches you can't move your model this is an orc boy you can't move your orc boy within one inch of any enemy models during your charge so what that means is if you have to move around that three inch model just because you rolled 6 inches doesn't mean you'll actually get to it because you might have to move an inch around the 3-inch model and you're only able to get 5 inches. Now of course you would be within an inch of your opponent. I guess that's a bad example. Say you rolled um yeah, say you're, the model your opponent has is 7 inches away. There we go. And you roll 6 inches you have to move around the three inch model that's between you and the target. And if you move around it and you only get five inches of distance because you have to you know maneuver around and you don't make your charge, that's bad. The way you get around this problem is you can move next to past any model you declare to charge against. So if you have the three inch model and the seven inch model and you declare a charge against both of them, but you really want to get to that seven inch model and you roll seven inches, you can just You know, move straight across. You don't care about that model that's between you and your target. But like I said, if you only declare the seven inch model as your target, you have to keep at least an inch away from any enemy models during your move. So, like I said, if you're hiding behind a wall, it doesn't matter because you can declare the charge against both models and you don't care because they can't shoot you with Overwatch. But there are points in the game where maybe the three inch model has like a flamethrower and you really don't want to charge it because if you overwatch it automatically hits you so you know there's a lot of things to think about when you're charging it's a it's not a super complex and technical thing but there are a lot of factors you have to consider because you have to consider can i make the charge distance uh how many times will my opponent get to overwatch me if they retreat will they be in distance you know because they can move up to three inches so if your target is six inches away they can retreat making it a nine inch movement well you're only 2d6 you have a maximum of 12 inches your average is six inches do you have a reroll or a way to benefit blah 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 blah. Um, this is a question i saw on the discord channel people ask and not just you know this week when we were talking but previous weeks you know people say how do I get my charges off I I can't seem to get into melee combat I can't seem to get there Um, one of the things I've learned is you can control this is one of the very few things you can have some control over in a minis game where you're using dice and that is the distance between you and your charge distance so on average when I try and make a charge my mathematically can say on average six inches or less is safe it's never guaranteed because it's a dice game, but it's a very safe bet. If you're within six inches and I charge you, I'm probably going to get there. Um, if you're playing as orcs, orcs have a natural reroll, so it makes it even more consistent. Um, and, you know, those are things to take into account when you're you're building your list and you're figuring out charge distances. Um, but for people who are listing who are brand new, anything six inches or less is very, very uh, not risky. It's very safe. Uh, logistically, you're probably going to make it. Uh, anything... Over 8 inches is risky because you have to hit 9 inches or more. The odds are not in your favor. You probably shouldn't make the roll unless, you know, it's like a desperation move or you really need to be in combat or something. Um, So for, you know, nutshell bolts, nuts and bolts for people who are new at the game or who are trying to practice their tactics and strategy, um, controlling and mitigating your distances will... Increase your uh, ability to get into melee combat because instead of trying to roll, you know, eight, nine, ten inches every game, you're like, "Well, I can charge, but I miss. I keep missing my charges. Why do I keep missing my charges?" Maybe you're rolling too high. Maybe you need to start, you know, rolling when you're like six inches or less, and you know, try and hide behind a wall. Try and position yourself. You know, if you go first, position yourself where you're sitting on an objective, and your opponent. Has to come to you, so at that point, you know they can't charge you because, say, you know you're you're 13 inches away. They can't charge you. You're totally safe. You're behind a wall, but you're sitting on objective and scoring a victory point. So they have to come to you. They you force them to try to stop you. Then if you get to go first in the next round, your opponent will definitely be less than 12 inches away and they'll probably be in you know a six to eight inch range. At that point, you could start to threaten them with a charge. You could start to you know mathematically deduce, okay, they have to come to me. All I have to do is sit here on this point. They're gonna move into my range and then I can charge them if I go first and gain the initiative and then I can lock down their model, move another one of my models onto the point so I can score a victory point And lock down their model and potentially get a flesh wound or a kill in the fight phase there's a lot of math and there's a lot of uh, foresight it's kind of like chess you have to think ahead in order to get your maximum value Um, but there are ways to mitigate the bad charges I can't get into melee I'm not getting my charge distances there's a lot of ways to mitigate that by um, setting up situations where your opponent has to deal with them or you just you're patient Sometimes you have to be patient and you give up a victory point. Your opponent gets to score an objective, but you stay out of charge range, you stay out of line of sight. You're setting yourself up so on the next round you can get in, get your opponent off that point, and you take minimal casualties. All right, the next thing we're moving into is the psychic phase. Now, this is not super duper common with the core rulebook. If you start playing with elites, you will see psychic stuff happening because Grey Knights and Thousand Suns have some really neat powers where they can do multiple psychic shots. But on average, in the core rulebook, you don't see much psychic stuff unless you're playing against, once again, Thousand Suns and Grey Knights. And in a nutshell, it's very simple. Psychic phase comes before the shooting phase, and the psychic phase works pretty simply. Um most everything has everything that's a psycho knows the cybolt power and then on top of that they may or may not have a special psychic power for their faction the way cybolt works is it says it has a warp charge of five Uh, Which means you roll 2d6. If you roll 5 or higher, you get to manifest the psychic power. Uh, If manifested, the closest enemy model within 18 inches of and visible to the psyker suffers one mortal wound. A lot of people have said, I don't know how to beat this, I don't know how to get around this, it's really powerful. Uh, My opponent always gets it because, you know, unless you roll double ones or double sixes, you, if you roll double one or double six, you take a peril of the warp and you could potentially kill yourself. Doesn't happen very often, and you have tactical reroll to get around. I think you do. Anyways, I'm not going to get into that. But um, the point is, the psychic phase is uncommon in the core rulebook. It's slightly more common in the elites and core rulebook setup when you're playing competitively. Um, But people go, what do I do? You know, if they roll a five or higher on 2d6, they just deal a, a mortal wound. The way to get around this is you have to be the closest model to the Psyker. And what people don't realize is this is not a shooting phase thing. So you could be hit with a cybolt if you're in melee combat. You know, you're know you within one inch of your opponent. People don't realize this is kind of a sneaky thing. Uh, you can get into melee combat with a Psyker and they can kill you before you get to melee because they hit you with a Psybolt how do you get around that ah here's the thing as long as you are one inch or at less distance from an enemy model you are considered to be in melee range and you'll fight in the melee phase so to mitigate this you can have a chump blocker or a sacrificial unit closer to the psyker so basically what that means is your melee unit that's really really good so you have an orc boy versus a gray knight your orc boy your orc knob even well orc knobs have two wounds so your, your orc boy with all these weapons blah 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 you can be one inch away and then say you charge that model with a gretchen and it is half an inch away so they have to use the cybolt on the gretchen because it is the closest Model to the psyker. That is how you cheat the system and make sure that the models you need to stay in combat Don't get blasted off the table by a cybolt very simple. So that's the psychic phase There's you know taking the psychic test dying the witch. We're not going to get into that um, But that's something to note if you're playing against people who play with psychers uh, as long as your cheap weak worthless model is closer than your model that needs to you know do the melee work they have to kill that first. Well, they have to target it first. They, they may or may not succeed um, because they have to take the test. But if you have two models and they're both of equal value, you're just kind of gonna have to take it there's nothing you can do Um, but if you're running like you know weaker models with stronger models you know you can mix and match where your weaker model is slightly closer and your stronger model is slightly further and then they have to use their psychic ability against the weaker model Uh, moving into the shooting phase uh, because of time these are the most simple version things to talk about Uh, shooting phase and melee phase or the fight phase Uh, In the battle round. So the shooting phase and the fight phase are exactly the same. You have a ready fire or uh, what do they call it? Hammer. Hammer of dawn a hammer of wrath so basically there's two steps in each shooting and melee phase first are the models that readied in the shooting phase they get to shoot first and you go back and forth so if i have two models that are ready you have two models that are ready the first player picks a ready model and they shoot then the opponent picks a ready model and they shoot then the first person player goes and shoots and blah 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 this is back and forth back and forth back and forth then once all ready models have shot you go to models that are not ready and they shoot mm. same thing back and forth back and forth back and forth first player second player first player second player back and forth super easy um there are different weapon profiles and things that are in the core rule book we're not going to go into those because we don't really have the time um and then we're going to go into the uh fight phase we're gonna we're gonna skip over obscurity and the injury chart just for a second just because we're kind of trying to, you know, roll through these. So the fight phase is exactly the same as the shooting phase. Uh, There are models that have the opportunity to go first. Now, these are the models that charged. So uh, in the shoot phase, models that readied shoot first, and then models that were not ready shoot second. In the fight phase, models that charged into combat go first, and models that Did not charge, go second. So it's the exact same thing. First player, hey, do you have a model that charged? Yes. Okay, you get to pick which one. It attacks. Then your opponent gets to pick a model that charged. Then it attacks back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Then you pick the models that didn't charge, starting with the first player. They make an attack. Then your opponent makes an attack. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Very simple, very easy to remember. Did you, you know, in the shoot phase, did you ready? No, you go second. Did you ready? Yes, you go first. Fight phase, did you charge? Yes, you go first. Did you charge? No, you go second. That's it. Um, We're not going to get into, you know, strength, toughness and all that stuff, but we are going to get into obscurity and we're going to get into the injury role. So these are things that are very important. Uh, the, I'm going to read the rule book, and then I'm going to explain the simple way. So, uh, when you resolve attacks, this is, uh, step number three in the, uh, shooting phase, the hit roll to see if an attack hits the target, roll a D6 and apply the following cumulative modifiers, negative one. If the target is at long range, negative one, if the model is obscured, negative one on each flesh wound for the shooting slash attacking model. Uh, negative one if the models negative one if the attacking models kill team is broken uh, i saw this in a facebook page and because someone was really confused because the negative ones uh don't make sense and they they had it was a complicated discussion and um this happens a lot people go well aren't negative ones better because you know you you rolled a four and you, you negative one means you need a three blah 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 so so in a nutshell uh We're just going to use this example for simplistic sake. If the strength is equal to the toughness of a model, you need a number to wound them. But that has no influence on the hit roll. Some people get confused about that because they think, oh, the wound roll and the hit roll, it's all the same. There's there's two different rolls. So we're going to separate the hit roll and the wound roll. The hit roll is based off of your ballistic skill. It says BS on your uh, character profile. Usually on average, it's a three plus. So, what that means is you need a 3, a 4, a 5, or a 6 to hit an enemy model. So, using the core rulebook, uh, if you're, we'll just say you roll a die, you roll a d6, boom, you rolled a 3. Cool. Now, you apply the modifiers to see if you actually hit your opponent. So, you rolled a 3, is, and then you kind of check these questions is your opponent obscured? Yes. Okay, then you take a negative one penalty onto that three, which means you now technically rolled a two. Well, at this point, you did not hit your opponent because you needed a three plus, a three or higher, to actually hit your opponent. If you hit your opponent, then you go into the wound roll, and there's a different chart for that. Uh, Let's say you rolled a four, okay, you roll a four. Is your opponent obscured? Yes, so it's negative one, it's a three. Is your opponent at long range? No. Okay, you hit them because you rolled a 4, minus 1 is 3. You need a three, four, five, or 6 to hit your opponent. So it's very simple. Um, you can also say, you know, hey, I rolled a 4. And then you check, is my opponent obscured? Yes, negative 1. I have a 3. Is my opponent at long range? Yes, negative 1. Now I technically rolled a 2. Okay, I did not hit them. That's how the negative modifiers work. So um, a common thing I'm going to throw at you is you can say it's a plus one to hit. Some people like pluses, some people like minuses. Um, but the way I work, I like pluses. So the way it works for me is if you're obscured, it's a plus one to hit. If you're at long range, it's a plus one to hit. So my three up, I am um, uh, artificially adding The value I need to hit you. So the way Warhammer and Games Workshop wants you to do it is you roll the die and then you reduce the value based on penalties and then you check it against what you need to hit. So like I said previously, you roll a four, you subtract one for obscurity, you subtract one for long range, you have a two. Is a two equal to or greater than a three? No, blah, blah, blah. That's a lot of math. For me, I like to do it this way. I have a three up to hit you. Are you obscured? Yes, now I have a four up to hit you. Are you at long range? Yes, now I have a five up to hit you. So I roll my die and I look, is it a five or a six? Yes, I hit you. Is it a four or less? No, I don't hit you. So instead of doing, I rolled a six, I subtract 1 for obscurity, I subtract 1 for long range, I have a 4, my ballistic skill is 3 or higher, so I, I, you know, for me it's just... A lot simpler to say I add penalties to the roll and then make the roll and, you know, do the math. So like I said, I have a three up. Are you obscured? Now it's a four up. Are you long range? Now it's a five up. Roll my die. Cool. It's a five. I hit you. It's a four. I don't hit you. Very, for me, that's very simple. But like I said, some people, their brains work with pluses. Some people's brains work with minuses. But that's how um, the penalties work based on rules as written or the sugi way i don't know a lot of people do it that way it's not like my way in particular um but we've just been playing games for so long it's a lot easier to say okay what do i need to hit instead of what did i roll versus what are the penalties versus what am i at now Uh, it's just a lot easier for me to say okay i need a five okay i got it i need a four i didn't get it and like i said still doing the math um So after all this is said and done, you know, you're going to go into your movement phase, your uh, psychic phase, your shooting phase, your fight phase, and then you're going to get to the morale phase. Now, this is a uh, very underwhelming phase because it's very simple, but it's something that a lot of people uh, kind of get uh, kerfuffled. So um, there are three steps. First is you check to see if your kill team is broken. And I'm, I'm, for those of you who are listening, I am going to go into the injury roll last because it's important. Uh, number one, check if your kill team is broken. If all models in a kill team currently have flesh wounds, are shaken, or are out of action, it is broken automatically. If all of your models have something bad happening to them, you're auto-broken. Otherwise, if more than half of the models in your kill team currently have flesh wounds, are shaken, or are out of action, it may be broken, roll 2d6. If the total is greater than the highest leadership characteristic of any models on the kill team, other than those that are shaken or are out of action, the kill team is broken. So a couple things. You can auto-break if all of your models are flesh wounds, shaken, or out of action. If... You are 51% of those things. If 51%, more than half of your models, are out of action, shaken, or have flesh wounds, then you roll 2d6 and you check against a model that is on the table and not shaken. This is a very important portion to building your kill team that people don't take into account because they, they don't read the morale phase. If you're going to break, uh, usually you're losing the game, so it's not good, but mitigating when you break is is just as important as uh, building your list and putting the right models on the table. So what I mean by this is uh, when you check if your kill team is broken, some models, some kill teams can only bring, like, five units. Looking at you, Grey Knights. Cough, cough. So when your kill team break check triggers... That will be when your third model, because you only have five, so you have to have three models. When your third model uh, is taken out of action, takes a flesh wound or shaken, you have to start taking break checks um, at the start of the morale phase. So what that means is for armies that can bring multiple models like orcs, death guard, tau, things like that, sometimes it's worth not bringing an upgraded weapon or or a special ability or paying for like an icon a or something like that so that you can bring an extra model. Because for example, if you have eight models on the table for you to take a break check, you know, 50% of eight models is four. So more than half would be a fifth model. So if you lose five models or five models are a combination of the things we talked about, then you start taking break checks. Well, it's the same thing if you have nine models. If you have nine, more than half is five. So, you know, you want to try and maximize where you have that odd or that even number of models, because if you have nine models, for example, you pay for the ninth model, you figure out you have nine models on the table, well, you know, half of nine is 4.5, so more than half would be five. So if you can get from nine models to 10 models, for example, you know, you have, you have a list, and you have nine models, and you you sacrifice a upgraded weapon for a tenth model. Well, now you don't take break checks until a sixth model is you know st- shaken off the table or has a flesh wound. I hope this makes sense. Basically, having even counts of models in your kill team on the battlefield gives you a little bit of an advantage for break checks. Now, this isn't something you should like use every single time because sometimes you need specific units, you need specific weapons, you need specific loadouts, but if you have the extra points and you can figure a way out to get to an even count that does give you an extra model, it gives you an extra wound, and it makes it much harder to hit your break test. Um, because you really don't want to break. Breaking is really bad. Every single model in a broken, like once you've broken, you're broken forever. Um, you in the core rulebook if you break you automatically lose that's a big thing I don't like if you break during like Adepticon missions or kill team missions in the competitive landscape uh, you don't automatically lose you're probably going to lose anyways because that's just bad you're in a really bad situation Um, but in the core rulebook there's a couple missions where it's like whoever breaks first just auto loses and that feels really bad because like I said some armies can only take five models and sometimes you take a bunch of flesh wounds and you're not out of the game you're just a little bit weaker Um, but if you break you lose it just feels really bad so anyways uh, step one in the morale phase check if your kill team is broken we already went over that. Uh, number two, remove Shaken Tokens. Number three, take Nerve Tests. You must take a Nerve Test. Uh, Shaken Tokens we'll explain here in a second with the Nerve Tests. So step three, at the very end, you must take a Nerve Test for each of your models that has a Flesh Wound and for your other models at your Kill Team uh, if you're broken. Take a Nerve Test for a model, roll a D6, and apply the following cumulative modifiers. Uh, you roll a D6, and then you add plus one for each other friendly model that is shaken or out of action. So this is uh, where rolling high is really bad, rolling low is really good. So you're comparing your uh, nerve check against the leadership of the model. So if you have leadership seven and you roll a six, it's not good. Um, So nerve test modifiers plus one for each other friendly model that is shaken or out of action and the negative one for each other friendly model other than shaken models within two inch of the model. So basically, you know, you have a, a Necron. It took a flesh wound. You have to do a leadership check. You have to do a nerve check. Well, your leadership is 10 for that army. So it's very difficult to pa- uh, to fail that so you roll a d6 cool then you check do you have any models that are shaken no do you have any models that are out of action no okay so then you just roll a six and that's it you pass because your leadership is 10 you roll a six now let's go to you know orcs or something let's say, say something has like leadership six okay you take a nerve test boom you roll a six all right then you check again Do you have any friendly models that are shaken? Yes, plus one. Okay, now it's a six plus one, it's a seven. Do I have any models that are out of action? Yeah, two of my models are dead. So that's another plus two. So it's six plus one, plus one, plus one. So I'm at a nine. Okay, then you check the result. Is my nine equal to or greater than my leadership? Yes. All right, now my model is shaken. Um, The model is shaken. Can't do anything until it is no longer shaken. Place a shaking token next to it. Uh, the unit test is always passed on a one. So if you roll a one, you just auto pass. Um, it's very. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, nerve tests. You fail. You you fail your nerve test if the uh, test exceeds the leadership. It's not equal to or greater than. It's just greater than. So um, once again, GW has really weird numbers. Um, you can math it however you want, but basically you roll a d6 and then you add. Uh, plus one for every model that's shaken and every model that's out of action. So if you've lost a lot of models, say you've lost like three or four models, it's not looking really good if you have leadership seven because you have, you automatically have a three or four. So, you know, you can deduce, okay, if I have a three or four, you know, because I have like three models, four models that are dead, I have leadership seven, I have to roll a one, two, or a three so I don't get shaken. Uh, and then if you have shaken models on the table, blah, 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 it, it all adds up. It can get really gross late game if you have Leadership 7 and you brought, like, you know, 15 models to the table and, like, six of them are dead or shaken because now you have to roll a one. Uh, The nice thing is in the morale phase, a one automatically passes. So even if you have like nine dead models and you know, you're automatically at leadership nine and you only have a leadership profile, like six or seven, if you roll a one, you automatically pass. Um, But these are the six steps in a nutshell. There is a lot more to it than what we went over, but you know, we're just not going to talk for two hours. On kill team, that's really rough on my voice, and that's a lot to talk about. The last thing, though, before we get out of here, is the injury chart. The way this works is very simple. If you roll to hit, and this is in both shooting and in melee, you roll to hit, you successfully hit. You roll to wound, you successfully wound your opponent rolls their saves. They roll an armor save and they fail. And then some armies have a disgustingly resilient roll. They have a second roll, a five plus plus feel no pain. They can roll that and they fail. So you roll to hit, success, roll to wound, success. Your opponent rolls to save and they fail. At this point, you, the attacker, roll on the injury chart. This is something a lot of people get wrong. When they first read the rule book, they think my opponent rolls to hit, my opponent rolls to wound, I roll to save, and then if I fail, I roll on the injury chart. That is incorrect. Your opponent, the attacker, the attacker always rolls on the injury chart. So like I said, you go through uh, attack, you go through hit, wound, save, everything goes through. You roll a d6 equal to the damage profile of a weapon. This confuses some people. So the way this works is if you have a gun. That shoots 1 million shots. But has a damage profile of 1. So you roll 1 million dice. And then you're, you hit you know 500,000 times. And you roll 500,000 wounds. And 250,000 get through. This is a very excessive example. To explain how it works. Because some people don't get it when you, do, you use small numbers. Like oh you roll 3 and 4 and whatever. So you roll 250,000 wounds. And 100,000 get through. And your opponent does not save all 100,000 wounds. Okay. Now you check the damage profile on your super gun. Damage profile is one. Even though you got to shoot one million shots, you only roll one die because the damage profile is one. So why that matters is damage profiles on some weapons could be two or D3 or six or whatever. So when you roll two, doesn't matter how many shots you have. If your, if your shot gets through and your opponent does not save, you roll dice equal to the damage profile. Normally it's 1. At this point, you roll your, uh, you roll your uh, injury check. If you roll a 4, 5, or 6, the model is removed from play, taken out of action. If you roll a 1, 2, or 3, the opponent takes a flesh wound. If you roll multiple dice, you take the highest result, and you, you're forced to take the highest result. You don't get to pick. So if you have a weapon profile with 3 damage you would roll, and say it has one shot. So you roll one shot to hit, one shot to wound, and your opponent fails their saves. Then you roll three dice on the injury check, and you take the highest. So if you roll a four, five, or six, their model is dead. Now, there are some different modifiers to this, as always, because it's Games Workshop. So modifier number one, if your opponent has a flesh wound or flesh wounds... It increases the threshold to take them out of action. So, initially, you need a four, five, or six to take a model out of action. If that model has one flesh wound, you need a plus one or a negative, however you want to math it. Once again, plus ones, negative ones. So, you need a three, four, five, or six to kill it. If they have two flesh wounds, you need a two, three, four, five, or six. If they have three flesh wounds, it's pretty much anything you roll. <laughs> um,. So very simple, the the number of flesh wounds they have increases your threshold by one. So instead of a four, five or six, you need a three, four, five, six, blah 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 blah. Very simple. On the other side of that to defend yourself so you don't get yourself killed, if your opponent is obscured when you shoot them and you get to the injury chart, it is one hindrance to kill them. So instead of needing a four, five or six, you need a five or a six. Now, this, both of those things stack with flesh wounds and obscurity, so you could have an obscured model with a flesh wound, and because of the way the rules book, you would roll your injury chart, and because they're obscured, it would be a 5 or 6 to kill them, but because they have the flesh wound, it's a negative 1, so it's a 4, 5, or 6 to kill them. Same thing, if they have two flesh wounds and they're obscured, you would have a negative one and a plus two, so basically you'd have a plus one, so you need a three, four, five, or six to kill them, so on and so forth. Um, The reason I explained the injury chart last is because keeping your model obscured is very, very frequent. And it's very, very powerful because if your model is obscured, they're harder to hit because like we said earlier, you need a uh, plus one to your ballistic skill to hit something that's obscured. So if you have a three up and your model, your opponent's model is obscured, you now need a four up. But also if you hit them and you wound them and they fail to save, you only... Take them out of action on a 5 or a 6, not a 4, 5 or a 6. So you go from a 50% chance of killing them to a 33% chance of killing them. That's a very significant percentage, uh, just because your model is in the right place at the right time. So keeping your models obscured is important, knowing your math is important, knowing these rules is important. And like I said, these 16 pages of the battle round, there's more to it than what we discussed in this very short podcast Um, well, it's not short, but in this short amount of time, um, there's so much more to discuss than what we talked about. Like I said, definitely look at the FAQ, definitely look at the Kill Team designer's commentary. There's more stuff in there to make you a better player, so you know how some of these uh, interactions work if you come to a, a very bizarre thing where you're like, I don't really know how this works. Check your FAQ, check your designer's commentary. But I hope this has been very beneficial. I know we have a lot of new players coming in to play the game, and that's very exciting. Uh, we have a lot of old players who are starting to say, you know, I want to get you know more competitive, or I want to get better, or I want to understand you know some of these rules and things. Um, realistically, it's very simple. Uh, you can read the rulebook, and if it doesn't make any sense, ask us in the Discord. You know, another shameless plug for the Discord channel. But like I said, there's like 200 people. Uh, it's a lot easier to probe their minds because you know we're not we're not mean. We're not reckless we're not ruthless you know we're very open to helping newer players or any player Uh, you know if you're experienced and you're like i don't know how this works come to us we're more than happy to help Uh, we love talking about kill team we love talking to people we love hanging out having a good time and that's kind of the whole idea behind the podcast is talking about the show or talking about the game meeting new people and having fun you know if i win events that's great if i lose events that's great i don't really care i'd rather have fun playing this game with people in the community that I love than you know winning everything and being you know a complete douche that just doesn't make any sense to me you know why win and just be mean about it when you can have fun you can have friends you can have a good time and you know do all kinds of fun stuff so uh, as we wrap up as we do the housekeeping as always thank you to all of our Patreon supporters if you're enjoying the show please check out the Patreon. Uh, You know, I really am very thankful to everyone who's supporting the show. We're going to be shipping out, we have a lot of stickers and buttons and cool swag, which we're going to be shipping out later this week to all of our Patreon supporters. So, you know, uh, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, definitely check it out. Um, Your name is also put on uh, the Patreon supporter, you know, on all of our stuff. So if we do videos, if we do audio, everyone gets to see that you're supporting the show. And you can uh, put your name on, on the models that I play at my events. So, check out the Patreon, check out all of the swag, all of the cool stuff we have. And as always, a huge thank you and shout out to BattleFoam, Discount Games Inc., and the Army Painter. Definitely check out those companies, I highly recommend them. And as we wrap this up, the very last thing I want to talk about uh, we're doing our paintbrushes and pajamas convention from home. We're going to have lots more information, but basically, the nutshell is. In the first weekend of November, we're going to run a free stay-at-home convention where we're just going to paint models. So you can do it from your friendly local game shop, you can do it from the comfort of your own home in your pajamas, hence the name. Um, but all we're going to be doing is hanging out in Discord chat, talking, uh, posting pictures online, um, you know, talking about color schemes, painting, uh, having fun. You know, you don't have to go anywhere, you don't have to do anything. There's no cost. There's Basically, it's supposed to be the most affordable and most open convention. So anyone from anywhere, anytime during Friday, Saturday and Sunday can participate and have a great time. If you're listening, we also have a lot of people who said, hey, I want to run a uh, I want to run a panel. I want to run a class. I want to teach people how to do you know, these things. And uh, if you're listening, you're like, hey, I want to do that, too. Come and join the Discord and let us know. We're setting up the convention, um, I don't know what you want to call it, the the schedule, because it's all going to be, at this point, it's all going to be free. Uh, People are setting up, you know, like Twitch streams where you can watch them, uh, you know, how to you know do edge highlights, how to, you know, base coat and use washes, how contrast works. People are going to talk about building your own terrain. There's a ton of stuff that's going on, and uh, it's it's all for the community it's the community investing in the community having a great time because Uh, we all have the same problem. We don't paint enough models. We all stay at home and it's really boring to do it by yourself. So this stay at home convention is going to completely remove that problem where we're going to have a good amount of people painting models from the comfort of their own home, listening to music, talking on the Discord channel, and just having a really good time. So yeah, definitely check out uh, pajamas and paintbrushes. We're going to have more information as we get closer to that event. But the first weekend of November is when that's happening. So mark your calendars. Uh, If you can only paint for a day or a few hours you're going to paint all three days with me uh, we're super excited to have you so thank you everyone for joining us it's going to be a great time for kill team uh, like i said i'm going to be at nova coming up here at the end of the month then we're going to get ready for pajamas and paintbrushes in november and uh, man it's just really exciting so thank you for listening thank you for supporting thank you to all of our patreons i'm just so humbled and grateful for your support thank you very much and we'll see you next time and as always remember keep on killing them.